0: This week on New Mexico in Focus, a year of promise transformed in the midst of a pandemic.
1: We're not only talking about loss of education, right? Schools were where you caught things like um, child abuse or learning disabilities and that those services are now, you know, up in the air.
0: Plus a reckoning in the making for New Mexico's military legacy as the extent of groundwater contamination is brought into the light. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. 2020 started with such promise, didn't it? State coffers were flush, the premium basin was booming and lawmakers were awash in optimism. Just three months later and people were locked down in their homes, isolated from friends and family in the midst of a health threat, unlike any of us have ever seen. And the COVID-19 outbreak continues to threaten our lives, health and livelihoods as we bring this year to a close. This week on the show, we'll take a walk down memory lane as we recap some of the biggest stories of the year that was, plus the COVID-19 outbreak has left many of us diving back into the bookshelf or searching for new content to stream as we shelter in place. And as we'll learn, that can include folks who put new spins on the old classics, how Shakespeare is getting new life in the year 2020. And we'll check in on our groundwater war investigation Looking at contamination tied to seven military installations in our state, the PFAS problem really points out the true challenges inherent in our state's long and storied military legacy. But we begin this week with our countdown of the top 10 stories of 2020.
2: Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at NMPBS. And today is Friday, December 25th, 2020. It is Christmas Day, and we uh, are all busy celebrating the holidays with our families today. But we wanted to uh, dig back into the year that was. It's a tradition we've done now for several years where we count down the top 10 stories of the year. And to do that, we bring in a special panel of line opinion panelists. These are all working journalists in New Mexico. We're thrilled they took some time with us during a busy time of the year. And with us is Dan Boyd, the Capital Bureau Chief for the Albuquerque Journal. We have Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. Also with us, Jessica Onsures, the news director at the Carlsbad Current Argus and Andy Lyman of New Mexico Political Report. Kick things off right there this week with stories number 10 and 9. And we do know that COVID is going to bleed into a lot of these stories this year. And we also want to make sure you realize that we don't think this is the be-all, end-all list of the top stories of the year. This is just based on our own internal conversations and debates, along with some outside input. If you've got different suggestions, different ideas, uh, even about the rankings, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Head to Facebook or Twitter, New Mexico in Focus. Leave us your thoughts there. It was just such a unique year. It's hard to compress down into 10 stories, but we did our best. We hope you enjoyed this walk down memory lane. And here now is host Gene Grant.
0: WE WANT TO MENTION THAT OUR TOP 10 LIST IS NON-SCIENTIFIC AND ONLY REPRESENTS THE THOUGHTS AND OPINIONS OF THE NEW MEXICO AND FOCUS TEAM WITH SOME HELP AND INPUT FROM A FEW OTHERS AS WELL. NOW WE KNOW YOU HAVE YOUR OWN THOUGHTS AND OPINIONS ON 2020 AND WE ENCOURAGE YOU TO SHARE THOSE WITH US ON OUR FACEBOOK PAGE. UP FIRST, LET'S INTRODUCE YOU TO OUR SPECIAL GROUP OF LINE PANELISTS, ALL OF THEM WORKING JOURNALISTS FROM AROUND OUR STATE. STARTING WITH THE Capitol BUREAU CHIEF FOR THE ALBUQUERQUE JOURNAL, THAT WOULD BE DAN BOYD. Also with us is Julianne Grimm. She's the editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. Andy Lyman is also with us on Zoom today. He's a reporter at the New Mexico Political Report. And Jessica Onsiras, news director at the Carlsbad Current, Argus. Welcome to you all, and thanks for taking a few minutes out of your busy schedule, certainly. All right, guys, number 10 on our list in this year is cannabis. The state's medical program continues to grow with an increased plant limits and a growing list of patients in qualified conditions, but THE LINGERING QUESTION REMAINS, IS THE STATE ON THE CUSP OF LEGALIZING RECREATIONAL USE CANNABIS? Now, DAN BOYD, THE BILL REALLY WENT NOWHERE IN 2020, AND THAT WAS BEFORE THE COVID DISTRACTIONS. BUT WHAT HAPPENED BACK THEN, DO YOU THINK?
3: YEAH, I THINK THE BILL REALLY RAN INTO SOME OPPOSITION IN THE STATE SENATE, EVEN AMONG SOME MODERATE DEMOCRATS WHO HAD A LOT OF MISGIVINGS ABOUT IT. And that was after uh, Governor Lou Grisham created a task force last year to kind of come up with a plan. Mm -hmm. So I think they're kind of uh, a little bit of different approach going into next year. But I I do think given some changes in the legislature, some new faces that'll be there, that uh, it it seems to have pretty good odds. You know, you never want to predict anything for for sure at the roundhouse, but um, it's looking likely. And I think also given the fact that uh, a number of other states have moved to legalize, including Arizona, you know, Mm -hmm. that that could have some SOME BEARING OR, um, YOU KNOW, ON NEW MEXICO'S DEBATE, WHICH SEEMINGLY HASN'T REALLY MOVED FORWARD IN THE LAST FOUR OR FIVE YEARS.
0: THAT'S TRUE THERE. ANDY, YOU COVERED THE ISSUE FOR THE POLITICAL REPORT AND ALSO YOU CO-HOSTED A PODCAST WITH US HERE AT uh, NEW MEXICO PBS. WE THANK YOU FOR THAT. NOW, THE APPROACH TO DATE HAS BEEN LONG AND and A COMPREHENSIVE BILL, uh, SOMETHING SHORT OF 200 PAGES, WE ALL RECALL, FOR SOMETHING THAT SEEMS LIKE A FAIRLY SIMPLE IDEA. AND CRITICS SAID IT WAS JUST TOO LONG, BUT IN A 60-DAY SESSION, HAVING WORKED ON IT FOR SEVERAL YEARS NOW, DO SUPPORTERS uh, JUST PUSH AHEAD AND SHOULD THERE BE A RETHINKING OF STRATEGY HERE GIVEN SOME OF THE NEW FACES WE HAVE IN THE LEGISLATURE?
4: Uh, MAYBE. Uh, I I THINK THE OTHER THING TO REMEMBER AND and WHAT SOME OF THE SPONSORS WERE were SAYING ABOUT THE LENGTH OF THE BILL IS THAT uh, YOU HAVE TO INCLUDE FIXES TO THE the, the MEDICAL PROGRAM OR AT LEAST uh, CHANGES TO THE MEDICAL PROGRAM TO SORT OF MAKE THOSE TWO WORK TOGETHER, mm-hmm. WHICH ADDS A WHOLE LOT OF LENGTH TO THE BILL. Um, BUT THEN OF COURSE BY DEFINITION, COMPREHENSIVE MEANS YOU GOT TO COVER A LOT OF THINGS, TAXES, uh, SOCIAL JUSTICE, uh, RESTORATIVE JUSTICE ISSUES. SO um, I DON'T SEE THE LENGTH SHORTENING. I THINK MAYBE THE the, the MESSAGING of, OF WHY IT'S SO LONG MIGHT CHANGE, BUT um, I EXPECT TO SEE SOMETHING SIMILAR uh, IN JANUARY.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey Jessica, you know how's this issue playing in your part of the state in the southeast? I'm really curious. You know, people are in favor of legalizing recreational use, and it could be a real boon for farmers in your neck of the woods. Is, is that how they're seeing things?
1: You know, that's an interesting um, question, but I don't think it's it's quite on point. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not looking at it as a as an opportunity to move into um, a farm of marijuana. Um, you know, we are producers of oil and gas down in this part of the state, and we all know what kind of roller coaster that's been for state revenue. Um, but we look at it as an opportunity to maybe do some of that expansion of our um, economy, the drivers are of our economy, and diversify a bit. Um, we're a conservative part of the states, and that kind of thing never really sits well. Um, when you talk about it in the southern, southeastern the counties. But I think when we look at it from an economic perspective, it is something that people are talking about. And if it covers, if the legislature can cover all of those things that Andy was talking about, really make it mesh well with a, a medical program, mm-hmm. then it might be something that we're in favor of.
0: Interesting. Uh, Julianne, interesting that uh, Dan mentioned Arizona beating us to the punch. I'm curious how you th- see this as potentially uh, manifesting in our legislati- legislative session coming up. Does this make a huge difference that Arizona's gotten there?
5: I mean, who would have suspected (laughs) that, um, you know, conservative Arizona would get recreational marijuana for adults before New Mexico did? But, you know, the power shift that um, Dan talked about within the Senate, you know, we lost um, John Arthur Smith, the conservative stalwart, even though he was a Democrat. He sort of stood in the way of a lot of the previous incarnations of the cannabis legalization YOU KNOW, JOHN'S BEEN uh, REPLACED, AND SO um, I THINK THAT POWER SHIFT IN Senate FINANCE IS GOING TO BE A BIG FACTOR um, mm-hmm. IN WHAT HAPPENS IN THE, the COMING YEAR.
0: Mm-hmm. DAN, LET ME GET YOU TO PICK UP ON THAT. THAT COMMITTEE, THAT PARTICULAR COMMITTEE, OF COURSE, IS WHERE IT EITHER HAPPENS OR DOESN'T HAPPEN ON THAT SIDE OF THE, the BUILDING. YOU KNOW, it, it, I DON'T WANT YOU TO MAKE PREDICTIONS HERE, AND I WOULD NOT ASK YOU TO DO THAT, BUT IS THE, the Senate FINANCE COMMITTEE, IS THAT STRUCTURE, Fundamentally different—that you see something different happening this time around. Are we still outside of John Arthur Smith? There's more changes possibly needed. Yeah, I mean, I
3: think, and and also having a new uh, Senate President Pro Tem who will be appointing the committee chairs. So I I think all all Senate committees could be different. I mean, Senate Judiciary had also been a roadblock, um, but I think now not having John Arthur Smith as kind of this, uh, um, you know, backstop is going to put more pressure on some of the other Democrats to uh, to maybe not stand in the way and block a bill like a. You know, senator cervantes who kind of had the bill actually stalled in his committee this year but mm-hmm. uh, i i do think that senate's going to be very different we still don't know who some of those faces and leadership positions are going to be yet in committee chairmanships but but yeah I, I think that's going to be crucial to whether the bill gets to the finish line or not mm-hmm. jessica the governor wants this to happen you know what i mean
0: how, how should we factor in what the fifth floor is going to be able to do to lobby for this happening
1: Well, that's, uh, so we know that um, she's been pushing for this. Fourth floor, sorry about
0: I keep doing that. Fifth floor. (laughs) Fourth floor. Fourth floor? Yes. Fourth
5: floor.
1: It's been a while since I've been at State House, so fifth floor sounds good to me too. Right. Um, We do know that she wants this to happen, and we knew that, we know that she's having conversations across the board um, to get this um, push to get support behind it, but I think it's also incredibly important that she get um, everyday residents behind this as well. And I think if you keep talking about Mm -hmm. medical cannabis, um, programs and the good that they do. You turn that conversation into recreational use and how well it's performing in some of the other states. We know that the boost that it's been giving to them. Um, that's the way to go with getting uh, your everyday New Mexican behind this.
0: Mm-hmm. Andy, you cover the, like I mentioned earlier. You cover this. Is there something you're watching for particularly in this session to make this thing? You know, is there something you you say? I you know. THE GOVERNOR WANTS IT. A LOT OF FOLKS WANT IT. WE HAVE NEW FACES THAT ARE A LITTLE MORE PROGRESSIVE. BUT THERE'S THIS ONE SITUATION. WHAT, what ARE YOU WATCHING FOR?
4: Uh, I THINK IT'S, it's STILL GOING TO COME DOWN TO uh, ISSUES OF um, TAXES AS FAR AS WHETHER uh, LAW ENFORCEMENT GETS a, a CHUNK OF THAT MONEY, WHICH HAS BEEN A BIG PUSH. Uh, I THINK THERE'S GOING TO BE SOME DISCUSSIONS OVER WHETHER WE SHOULD EVEN DISCUSS EARMARKING THIS. Hmm. Or if this is a, a, you know, 16 to 20% tax that goes into the general fund and then can be a little bit more flexible that way. Um, but I think uh, the big conversation from opponents, I think, is going to be um, impaired driving, public safety, um, that kind of thing. And, hmm. and I think uh, taxes is a good, good driver for this or a good dr- conversation starter for it. But uh, I think then the question becomes how much do we want to... Uh, YOU KNOW, BANK ON MAYBE MAKING THINGS UNSAFER FOR THE REST OF of NEW MEXICO. IN OTHER WORDS, DO WE REALLY, IS THAT MONEY WORTH IT IS it GOING TO BE A CONVERSATION, I THINK.
0: Mm, GOOD POINT THERE. HEY, IT'S NO SURPRISE OUR COUNTDOWN INCLUDES A LOT OF COVID-RELATED STORIES, BUT IT WAS SUCH A MONUMENTAL AND COMPLEX ISSUE THAT WE WANTED TO REALLY BREAK IT DOWN IN OUR LIST. AT NUMBER NINE IS THE EFFECT OF COVID OUTBREAK ON OUR STATE'S MOST VULNERABLE COMMUNITIES. WE'RE TALKING TRIBAL NATIONS, PRISON POPULATIONS, AND OF COURSE, OUR HOMELESS BROTHERS AND SISTERS Uh, Julianne, COVID really laid bare the discrepancies in care, resources, and systems for a lot of folks in our state, didn't it? Certainly. Um, You
5: know, we we've seen a lot of uh, local response in Santa Fe, particularly of the three issues that you've um, delineated for this segment, mm-hmm. um, you know, with respect to taking care of, of homeless individuals. And so you saw early on in the pandemic, the city of Santa Fe started to utilize a former college campus in Midtown and the dormitories there to um, provide housing for both people who were supposed to be isolating because of potential exposure and people who had tested positive um, for Mm COVID-19. So that happened early on. And then next, you saw the city partner with a nonprofit from back east to purchase a hotel using CARES Act money and that hotel is supposed to provide transitional housing um, for people who might be on the, the edge of um, not being able to afford market rate rental housing, but they would be able to afford um, a share of the, the overhead for this small studio apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, lastly, there's been this recent announcement that the Salvation Army is going to provide overnight um, accommodations, which is something they're not able to do on a year-round basis, and they're also using some of the emergency pandemic relief for that. So really, you see this consistent expansion of services for um, individuals who find themselves homeless. And I think that is, um, you know, one of the things we're seeing happen from the Santa Fe, you know, city government here. And I know Albuquerque has made some similar uh, decisions mm-hmm. recently.
0: Mm-hmm. Jessica. YOU KNOW, A LOT OF US, THE REALITY OF THE PANDEMIC REALLY HIT HOME WHEN THE NEWS STARTED TO COME OUT ABOUT WHAT WAS HAPPENING ON THE Navajo NATION. Uh, WHEN YOU THINK ABOUT, YOU KNOW, FORCED WEEKEND LOCKDOWNS, EVEN ROAD CLOSURES, THAT WAS A FIRST FOR OUR STATE. WE SAW THAT HAPPENING IN OTHER PARTS OF OUR COUNTRY. BUT HERE, IT WAS THERE. AND IS THIS A WAKE-UP CALL IN TERMS OF DOING MORE FOR INDIGENOUS COMMUNITIES IN OUR STATE?
1: MOST DEFINITELY. THE ANSWER TO THAT IS YES. Mm WE SAW THEM ACT FAIRLY QUICKLY WHEN IT CAME TO THE IMPACT um, ON THE RURAL POPULATIONS ON THE Navajo NATION, NOT JUST THE Navajo NATION. um, WE HAVE THE MESCALERO APACHE DOWN IN in Mm -hmm. SOUTHERN NEW MEXICO AS WELL. Um, THEY DID THE SAME THING, BOTH TRIBES, um, TRIBAL LEADERS um, LOCKED DOWN RESERVATIONS, THEY CLOSED THE ROADS IN AND OUT. THEY INSTITUTED THESE REALLY, REALLY STRONG STAY AT HOME ORDERS, um, YOU KNOW, BUT WE ALSO SAW, I THINK the, THE REPERCUSSIONS OF THAT WAS. Um, a lot of questions about how do we continue to serve that population amid the pandemic when we're having trouble getting supplies out to them. Um, we're having trouble communicating with some of our partner organizations, whether it's the Bureau of Indian Affairs or other federal organizations um, to really address pandemic's impact on the rural communities. Um, I think the big the big question too was, you know, you're talking about a tribe whose livelihood is part of bringing in tourists, bringing in people into those um, rural areas. And now you're, impact, you're, you're impacting more than just the tribal, the tribes' um, health, health. You're impacting their financial health as well.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, Dan, the governor had a, a especially thorny problem when it came to prisons and how to manage the prison population during this uh, this pandemic. You know, there's no r- real way to quarantine folks. Uh, the governor, you know, she did push some early releases, and that was a huge controversy as well. But have seen outbreaks flare up. A lot of folks are asking her to do more. Uh, do you think more could have been done by the state or the feds when it came to prisons or it, it just is yeah, what mean, it is
3: I think with prisons and I, and I think with some of these other issues I mean it, it, the frustrating thing is it seems like this could have been predicted um you know these are the vulnerable populations in, in kind of congregate settings uh I, I think with prisons a difficult thing and the governor has said you know even if she were to release a lot of these kind of low-risk inmates um you know are there spaces in halfway houses or are they going to go back into safe settings as well so it's right. not quite a, so easy it's just um you know, saying that you can release them and it'll be safer for the community. Um, uh, you know, I think other states are seeing similar challenges with prisons, um, but I do think there are going to be questions about maybe why, or maybe for the next time that there should be a little better kind of plan in place for having the infrastructure to, uh, you know, to absorb something like this. Mm-hmm. Andy Lyman, um,
0: another situation that's shown itself here is our homeless population. I mentioned that in the setup. Um, it's been a problem since before the pandemic, honestly, but the virus has created. You know all kinds of new concerns and it exposed systemic struggles. Is something like COVID actually a good thing in terms of raising awareness for our homeless population here? Because we have to act now. We can't just be passive about this.
4: Yeah, I think it raises, uh, uh, like many things in this pandemic, we've we've sort of seen things highlighted that we didn't pay attention to before. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that are experiencing homelessness uh, often depend very. Uh, they depend a lot on uh, businesses, right? I mean, that's. Sort of the the ugly truth of the matter is that a lot of these people have to find bathrooms to sort of, uh, you know, clean themselves up, maybe mm-hmm. stay warm for a little bit. And uh, I think it's sort of highlighted a bigger need for resources for for those folks that uh, literally don't have a place to go to stay yeah. warm.
0: Yeah. JULIANNE, I'M I'm CURIOUS, I'VE JUST GOT UNDER A MINUTE HERE. YOU MENTIONED EARLIER THAT THERE'S A LOT OF ACTIVITY IN SANTA FE SPECIFICALLY FOR THIS. IS THERE A PARTICULAR CHALLENGE FOR NORTHERN NEW MEXICO ON THIS ISSUE VERSUS OTHER PARTS OF THE STATE?
5: YOU KNOW, I I DON'T KNOW THAT THERE IS. I MEAN, I THINK THAT, YOU KNOW, um, NORTHERN NEW MEXICO, IT TENDS TO BE TOUGHER DURING THE WINTER THAN SOUTHERN NEW MEXICO. CERTAINLY, Mm -hmm. WE WERE TALKING ABOUT THIS BEFORE THE uh, the taping began that it's for Jessica, it's 70 degrees um, in Carlsbad. It is not 70 degrees in Santa Fe right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what we do see and what is a factor every time the winter rolls around is that becoming homeless um, during the winter months is much more difficult on a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, just the, the added factor, the energy that you're burning, mm-hmm. trying to stay warm trying to stay dry, Mm -hmm. um, but that's exacerbated. And so the winter plus the pandemic, I think is creating conditions that are hard to overcome.
0: That's right. It is December, late December. That's all the time we have for now. When we come back to the line, it's our number eight story of 2020.
2: Another big story for us in 2020 was the continued revelations about um, contamination of groundwater around military installations in New Mexico. We are currently up to seven that have have or are suspected to have contamination from PFAS chemicals, which were used in the past in aqueous firefighting foams by the military. They're dangerous compounds. They pose serious medical risks. And because they bioaccumulate, they are super hard- to clean up, can't do it easily with water or light or any of those usual ways to clean up pollution. We have an investigation on this very issue called Groundwater War. Uh, correspondent Laura Pascus is working with us on that. We encourage you to go to our website to learn a whole lot more including a recent report on Fort Wingate which was recently added to that list of potential sites and the interesting part about that was Many people didn't in the state didn't know that was a potential uh, place because the military had not communicated that potential pollution to them. So that story's on there. We've also here towards the end of the year done a series of short videos to try to make this story and this issue super accessible, easy to understand, and especially to understand the context and why this is such an important story for New Mexico. So right now we're going to share one of those with you. And you can find them all on the website as well. Go to NMPBS, um, the uh, website, and search for Groundwater War. There's a link there right on the front page. Uh, We encourage you to do that. But right now uh, is our last piece, which really looks at how challenging the issue of taking care of this PFAS problem is, given New Mexico's long and storied military history. Of course, you're talking uranium mining Um, nuclear bomb and Los Alamos National Labs, the testing at the Trinity site. Now we're talking about PFAS. These military installations provide a lot of jobs to a lot of folks across our state, but it seems like in our research we found that even when it comes to the PFAS contamination, we don't get the attention from the military or the response or the transparency that even other states do. And so this relationship we have Reliance in some ways on the military makes it really hard to also hold them accountable. And so Laura Paskus goes into a little more detail about all of that here in this Groundwater War special.
6: We all know the military occupies critical chapters in New Mexico's history. Decades ago, the United States government built the world's first nuclear weapons here in New Mexico. Uranium for those weapons was even mined in the western part of the state. And on July 16, 1945, just one week after the military established White Sands Missile Range, the United States government dropped the gadget and unleashed a new weapon on the world. New Mexicans knew nothing about that test or the weapons. Not the New Mexicans hundreds of miles away who could see that white flash from the Trinity site early that July morning. Not even the people living near this brand new range. New Mexicans knew nothing about that test until after the U.S. dropped those weapons on Japan three weeks later. We know that the military is important to New Mexico's economy. There are Air Force bases like Cannon, Holloman, and Kirtland, national laboratories like Los Alamos and Sandia, White Sands Missile Range. We've also got armories, aviation centers, and a demolition range. But there's more to the military's legacy than jobs and history. Decades-old radioactive and hazardous waste is still being discovered from weapons work at Los Alamos in the 1940s. White Sands Missile Range has critical contamination dating to the 1960s. In Albuquerque, cleanup is ongoing for a jet fuel spill that occurred over the course of decades at Kirtland Air Force Base. And those uranium mines from the 1940s and 1950s, they are still polluting the lands, waters, and bodies of the Diné, the people of Laguna, and other communities in western New Mexico. Even downwinders, the descendants of the people who lived near the Trinity site in the 1940s, are still trying to get the government to acknowledge how generations of New Mexicans were made sick by these atomic detonations. Now New Mexico is faced with yet another threat. Pur and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, are toxic chemicals that cause all sorts of health disorders, including cancer. They've been found in the waters below Holloman Air Force Base and below Cannon Air Force Base, as well as in the drinking water for the city of Clovis and in nearby private wells. There aren't proven ways to safely dispose of these chemicals, and the military has resisted the state of New Mexico's efforts to get a cleanup plan in place or even map exactly where the contamination is. Now, we've learned there may also be PFAS pollution at five other military installations in the state, in Rio Rancho, Santa Fe, Roswell, White Sands, and Fort Wingate. There's still so much to learn, including about where exactly these chemicals are and who has been exposed. If there are lessons to learn from the military's legacy in New Mexico, it's that there are no easy answers and certainly no quick fixes. That's why at New Mexico PBS, we wanna know as much as we can about the PFAS that's been found below New Mexico communities. Visit our website, Groundwater War, to learn more about PFAS and its impact on New Mexicans.
2: Right, time to dive back into our top stories of the year. Number eight comes up next, and as you will hear, this is Zoom—a word many of us had heard but in different contexts before 2020. Now, much of our lives plays out in this virtual meeting space, workspace. It's how we get our work done. It's how we talk to family and friends. Uh, It's even how we find entertainment. Sometimes people found a lot of innovative ways to use it. Uh, it's changed uh, our thoughts on how we do business and we can't travel and uh, our nine to five schedule. Uh, our lives have been changed and there is no doubt that it will continue to be changed by this, even once we are through the darkest times of the pandemic. So let's kick it over to our special line panel and Gene Grant now for more on the rise of Zoom.
0: Back now to our countdown of the top 10 stories of the year. WE'RE UP TO NUMBER EIGHT, AND WE'RE HEADED RIGHT BACK TO THE COVID WELL FOR THIS ONE. 2020 HAS REALLY CHANGED THE WAY WE ALL WORK, SHOP, LIVE, AND INTERACT WITH FRIENDS AND LOVED ONES. ZOOM HAS BECOME AN INTEGRAL PART OF ALL OF OUR LIVES, MAKING BUSINESS TRAVEL AND A TYPICAL 9-5 to WORK SCHEDULE NEARLY obsolete. ANDY Lyman, THE CAT IS OUT OF THE BAG NOW, AND REMOTE WORKING WILL LIKELY BE A PART OF OUR LIVES LONG AFTER COVID IS GONE. DO YOU THINK THAT'S A GOOD THING OR A BAD THING?
4: I think that, well, I think that there's probably more good than bad. I, mm-hmm. I I think that we're starting to have another conversation about how geographical location really plays a little role in, in what kind of job you can do remotely. Um, I, I think in all of this, though, I think we also forget about people that uh, don't work remotely, right? People that are um, whether it's essential frontline health workers or just people retail workers, right? There is no remote working for for that kind of job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think probably the most heard phrase this year is uh, "you're muted," right? Like everyone's <laughs> trying to figure out um, how to how to use this. So I think uh, I, I think it's good overall. It's just going to take some time for us to all get used to it.
0: That's a good point. Hey, Julianne, people crave interaction. It's just you know part of what we do as beings. And folks have come up with lots of innovative ways. To use technology to try and you know fill those gaps but it's not the same by any stretch i mean nobody would ever propose that how do you think it affects our overall productivity in the stories we tell what's your sense of that
5: well i think for storytelling there are some you know benefits and there are some detractors to this new way of communication i mean Mm. when you have time to work on a story and you have people who are willing to let you into their lives the very best thing to do is to be with them. You know, we always prefer to do physical in-person interviews and talk to people and look at, look at them and, you know, kind of see and hear and smell things. And that is all Um, Changed, And so we're doing a lot of journalism over Zoom, we're trying to make podcasts using, um, you know, people's iPhones and asking them to go into their closets to talk to us (laughs) so that the sound is a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, that's definitely a a change. But, you know, on the other side of things, I think that there are some agencies and there are some um, people with stories that need to be told that are able to utilize these remote broadcast functions in a way that like previously was only accessible to teams like your fine team at PBS. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, now the Forest Service can set up an iPhone in a hotel ballroom and every night they can talk to people in a community about a forest fire that is affecting their daily lives. And that's not a, a hypothetical rhetorical example. That's what happened in Santa Fe this summer. And so you had three or four hundred people watching the firefighters every night talk about what was happening on the ground and why we were seeing more smoke or less smoke and whether we were in danger. And previously, you know, the journalists would be driving up to the national forest to stand in the wind while the county manager was at a podium with a couple of note cards. And that would be the extent of the information. Mm-hmm. So I think that that there's kind of two ways in which the storytelling storytelling has GOTTEN A LITTLE BIT MORE CHALLENGING, BUT ALSO HAS REALLY OPENED UP IN NEW WAYS.
0: THAT'S AN EXCELLENT EXAMPLE, THOUGH. THAT'S A REALLY TERRIFIC EXAMPLE OF HOW THINGS HAVE CHANGED. YOU KNOW, DAN, BALLOON FIESTA, STATE FAIR, INDIAN MARKET, YOU KNOW, THE LIST GOES ON AND ON OF THINGS THAT, YOU KNOW, EVENTS THAT WENT VIRTUAL IN 2020. BUT I'M CURIOUS, MAYBE YOU GUYS CAN ALL uh, GET IN ON on THIS ONE. I'M CURIOUS, SOME OF THE BEST EXAMPLES YOU'VE SEEN OF CREATIVE ATTEMPTS TO RECREATE THESE UNIQUELY NEW MEXICO uh, DEALS ONLINE? I KNOW IT'S SORT OF AN unfair QUESTION TO POP ON YOU, BUT has you HAVE YOU SEEN ANYTHING THAT REALLY MAKES YOU GO, WOW, THEY REALLY DID A GOOD JOB WITH THIS IF WE CAN'T BE ALL TOGETHER? THIS IS NOT SO BAD.
3: Uh, YEAH, I, I THINK THERE HAVE BEEN ATTEMPTS. Um, mm-hmm. I THINK SOME, have, I, I CAN'T THINK OF ANY REAL, OFF THE TOP OF MY HEAD. I MEAN, LIKE JULIANNE, I, I KIND OF ALWAYS PREFER IN PERSON. I MEAN, mm-hmm. IT'S BEEN A BIG ADJUSTMENT, uh, GETTING USED TO THE DOING EVERYTHING BY ZOOM. I, I THINK EVEN WITH THE LEGISLATURE, YOU KNOW, HAVING two special sessions this year that the public was not allowed. And um, just seeing how, how strange that was. I mean, having it be the people's house and open to the public is such a kind of a, a fundamental part of the, the state capitol. And mm-hmm. and we still don't know what it's going to look like going ahead to, to January in the 60 day session. So I think certainly people have tried to adapt and there have been positives. But I think kind of some of those transparency pieces when it comes to government, um, you know, maybe still isn't quite there and not the same as hearing direct public testimony from constituents and AND PEOPLE LIKE THAT. Mm. Andy, I Lyman, think GO AHEAD Julian. Of, MY FAULT.
5: THERE WERE TWO THINGS IN SANTA FE THAT I THINK PEOPLE HAVE REALLY ENJOYED. ONE OF THEM WAS Zobra DID A COMPLETELY VIRTUAL PRESENTATION. AND um, THOSE OF US WHO DON'T LIKE TO CROWD OUT ONTO THE BASEBALL mm-hmm. FIELD WITH 10,000 OF OUR CLOSEST FRIENDS MAYBE GOT A VIEW OF ZOZOBRA THAT WE DIDN'T GET BEFORE. AND THEN JUST RIGHT AFTER THANKSGIVING, WE DID THE PLAZA LIGHTING same thing, big event people usually go to. They did it online. It was beautiful. People actually watched it. So, um, you know, I think there's, a, there's more buy in than maybe um, you would think.
0: Sure. No, that's a fair point. Jessica, what have you seen out there that makes you sort of go, wait, hey, those guys got their arms, arms around this thing for a remote uh, situation?
1: It's actually been pretty inspiring to see a couple of things. So we missed the huge tourism season here. Um, and it was really incredible to watch our local state and national parks embrace this idea of online and uh, trying to reach a bigger audience than you normally would not. Everybody can pack their family into the RV and drive down to White Sands, our newest national park, or come down to Carlsbad for the, the caverns. But everybody can log on and take that virtual 3D tour of the, you know, the big cave. Um, it's an incredible experience. Um, I was thinking about the question that you posed earlier. You know, how has how have some of these organizations transformed what is typically a huge event into a COVID-friendly event? And the first thing that popped into mind was Christmas on the Pecos. Every year um, we invite hundreds of thousands of tourists to come down to Carlsbad and take a boat tour down the Pecos River and see these incredible Christmas displays. And that, you know, we had planned to still do that and suddenly we couldn't anymore. Um, AND THE IDEA WAS, YOU KNOW, LET'S TAKE A DRONE. LET'S TAKE A DRONE UP ABOVE THE PECOS RIVER, RECORD EVERYTHING, GIVE EVERYONE A FRONT ROW SEAT TO THIS VIEW AND PUT IT UP ONLINE AND SHARE IT THAT WAY. AND, YOU KNOW, WE DON'T GET THE REVENUE FROM THAT, BUT WE STILL GET THE INTEREST AND I THINK THEY SAW IT AS AN OPPORTUNITY TO CONTINUE TO INVEST IN GETTING THE WORD OUT ABOUT THESE INCREDIBLE EVENTS IN NEW MEXICO Mm -hmm. THAT NOT EVERYBODY GETS TO
0: ATTEND. Mm -hmm. GOOD POINT THERE. ANDY, YOU KNOW, uh, IF YOU WANT TO PICK UP ON DAN'S POINT ABOUT THE LEGISLATURE, I'd uh, love to hear your thoughts on that, too. But I'm cu- also curious about, uh, we joke a little bit around here that, uh, about the amount of kids that run into the frame when we're doing Zoom interviews and how one deals with family and such like that. It's actually kind of funny. What's your thought there?
4: Yeah, actually, I mean, it's its appropriate we're talking about this now because I've been having to sort of ride my mute button. Uh, it's not so much kids. To, I, I have two kids that often cause that problem, but mm-hmm. also dogs, right? Uh, yeah. You know and if i put them outside or put or, or shut the door it's like they make more noise and it's it's you know dogs pets don't understand what you're why you're not paying attention to them and, and talking into a screen necessarily but to your other point about uh the the legislature i think uh we're, we're just gonna have to wait and see i think dan covered a lot of it already but mm-hmm. to see what is going to be accepted and then of course there's always going to be opponents and and critics of of how it gets done that's right um to, to sort of ride that line of enough public access for people to participate in their government. um, But then also keep those people safe.
0: Good point. So glad you got that in there. We'll leave that there for now, but up next on the line, our seventh and sixth biggest stories of 2020.
2: All right. Got a really fun segment for you here now that we hope you'll enjoy for the holidays, as I'm sure a lot of you are diving into a good book or finding new content to stream uh, because it's still not so easy to get out and about and do the usual travel and visiting with family and all of those things that we would love to be doing. And uh, recently we caught wind of an of a online presentation done by a UNM professor, Marissa Greenberg, all about how folks are still reimagining and looking at the impacts of one William Shakespeare. Of course, he's a key literary figure, playwright, that has captured imaginations for generations and centuries and even in the midst of a pandemic people are finding it important to keep his work alive and also again to uh, show the universality of it but also make it more relevant to a society today and you see it in movies in video games in podcasts in books it's everywhere and so it's a fascinating presentation we wanted to talk to professor uh, Greenberg a little bit more about her work and what she's finding, and especially how the pandemic is sort of bringing a lot of attention to these kinds of efforts as well. So here now, correspondent Gwyneth Dolan.
0: The pandemic has resulted in all of us having a lot more free time in 2020. There were no trips to go on, movies to rush out to see or events to attend. That means all of us are looking for new ways to fill the void. For some that may mean returning to an old friend, like the complete works of Shakespeare tucked away on a bookshelf. But there are also plenty of other ways to put a fresh spin on the Bard of Avon's timeless works. Correspondent Gwyneth Dolan recently talked with UNM professor and Shakespeare scholar Marissa Greenberg about the innovative ways artists are putting a new spin on Shakespeare's stories and
7: characters. Marissa Greenberg, thank you so much for being with us today.
8: Thank you very much for having me, Gwyneth.
7: So Shakespeare's been dead for more than 400 years, but you are still teaching his work to students here at UNM. Some of them probably think, this old white guy who's been dead all this time, he has like literally nothing to do with my life. (laughs) But if you've ever fought fire with fire, been eaten out of house and home, worn your heart on your sleeve, if you've ever made an ass of yourself, if you haven't slept a wink, Even if this is all Greek to you, or you are dead as a doornail, then you talk like Shakespeare. It's everywhere around us. And Marissa, it's books, movies, opera, ballet, comic books, video games, everything. How are artists and writers today making Shakespeare relevant to a new generation?
8: Well, that's an excellent question and one that scholar teachers of Shakespeare are grappling with right now, Um, have been for a while, but especially now in light of all kinds of events happening nationally, as well as globally. And maybe the best way for me to start answering your question is to add another well-known phrase to your list. And that is, oh brave new world from The Tempest. Uh, And the character Miranda, who is this young woman who's basically grown up on this island says this when all of a sudden she sees a group of men for the first time really. And her father's response is, "'Tis new to thee." And I think that Shakespeare adaptation is part of this larger process of showing how Shakespeare is constantly new and being renewed to make his work relevant as well as to show some distance between our present and the past. And and that historical lesson I think is as crucial and as relevant as bringing Shakespeare into our lives um, and in relation to our lived experiences. Um, One, I think recent example, the public theater in New York as a result of the pandemic had to shift gears with its planned production of Richard II from this past summer. It was supposed to be a stage production, which could not take place uh, even in the outdoor theater in which they perform. And so they made it a podcast. They went on to the radio. They produced the play in four parts and inserted within the performance interviews with actors and scholars. And so even before we get to the way they actually put on Richard II, we have these artists responding to a current crisis and saying, okay, we feel Shakespeare is still relevant. We need to still get Shakespeare out there. How are we gonna do it? We're gonna get on the radio, we're gonna get on the airwaves and that is how we are gonna share Shakespeare. This Richard II featured basically an entire cast of actors of color. Richard II was played by a Black actor. Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV, King Henry IV by the end of the play, was played by a Black woman. And what the purpose in no small part in casting actors of color in these primary roles was to explore issues of power that center around political positions, but also around Shakespeare himself. Who has claim over these texts? Who has claim over these words? Who gets to determine what they mean? And that authority, that cultural authority is no less significant, I think, than the political authority that's being represented in the play and that passes from the hands of a black man to a black woman.
7: So the publishing house, I want to switch to books. The publishing house Hogarth invited a series of contemporary authors to write novels based on Shakespeare plays and told them, go anywhere you want with this. And they jumped at the chance. Margaret Atwood took on The Tempest in Hagseed, Anne Tyler based Vinegar Girl on The Taming of the Shrew. Why are modern writers so attracted to Shakespeare still?
8: Well, who isn't attracted to Shakespeare? I, you can, Shakespeare is a monument to be reshaped uh, in order to be a testament to whatever position you want to advocate for. Uh, It is a place of authority from which to ground oneself, but then there's also just the artistic mastery, the poetry of Shakespeare's words that invite writers and other artists to engage. In terms of the Hogarth series, one of the things that impresses me the most, uh, if I may, um, are the plays that have been taken on, right? You mentioned Tempest, you mentioned Taming of the Shrew. There's also one that's an adaptation of Othello, one of Merchant of Venice, all hot button issue plays. Um, and then there's my personal favorite, which is The Gap in Time, which is by Jeanette Winterson, which is an adaptation of a lesser known Shakespeare play called The Winter's Tale. But like these other plays, takes on critical social issues and therefore takes Shakespeare's late 16th, or early 17th century English dramas and reworks them to talk about subjects that people today want to talk about.
7: And which reminds me of West Side Story, right? Playwrights also like to take these plays and kind of remix them for the modern day. A lot of people don't necessarily know or think about West Side Story being a remix.
8: Well, it absolutely is a retelling of Romeo and Juliet uh, in the streets of 1961, New York. At least that's when the movie was made. And yet here again, we can see how both the adaptation is talking back to Shakespeare, but also I think talking to the future, talking to us almost 60 years later, where in West Side Story with all its dance and music and it's absolutely beautiful and just a wonderful way to get the entire family watching Shakespeare and listening to Shakespeare. it makes really legible, really visible, the issues of race that Romeo and Juliet are about and that are still with us today, both in terms of taking Shakespeare's two households and making them into rival gangs, um, but also by, if one is comfortable, starting a conversation about what it means to have actors in brownface, uh, right? The, The issue of blackface, has been in the news um, in particular as political figures have been caught participating in in it. This is another way to get that conversation going um, and to talk about why this might be upsetting, what it does in terms of exclusion, what it does in terms of biases And then to think about, all right, well, they're remaking West Side Story in 2021 as a film. How are they gonna tackle these issues of of race and casting in interesting ways?
7: There are so many interesting movies out there. Um, I'm gonna name some and you just pick one or two. Uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, She's the Man, Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood and Ron. Boz Lurman's Romeo Plus Juliet, My Own Private Idaho, Romeo Must Die, The Lion King, Scotland PA, and Ophelia. Which jumps out at you?
8: <laughs> so many of them. Um, I have so many of them on my shelves and love to watch them. Uh, perhaps a bit obsessively. Um, maybe the one that I'll pick out is 10 Things I Hate About You. Uh, because it was made in 1999, Heath Ledger, uh, really popular, um, and in so many ways is a fun film, um, a fun film of what I find to be a detestable play, and that's The Taming of the Shrew. And yet even that film, again, 20 plus years later, we can see changes, right? When 10 Things I Hate About You was made, it was a way to rethink this deeply misogynist play and try to make it you know, a feminist film. And But I think now when we look back at it, we see, well, is why is feminism being portrayed in terms of anger and uh, a general dislike of everyone around you? Um, and how might that now in 2020, after the Me Too movement, um, now that we have a woman vice president elect, how might we need to think critically anew and make new versions of *Taming of the Shrew* to think across time uh, and, you know, add more films to my shelf?
7: Well, you know, the, the role of women in these films and the portrayal in, in the plays it does um, invite opportunity to rethink. There is a video game based on Hamlet with Ophelia as the hero. I, You told me you play this game.
8: Yes, I do. And, and I will also readily admit that I'm not much of, of a gamer. Um, <laughs> not that I have anything against video games. It's, I, But this video game is called Elsinore. And like the film Ophelia that came out a few years ago, retells the story of Hamlet from Ophelia's perspective. But what the video game does is, in my opinion, amazing. First, as the player, you are Ophelia. Ophelia is biracial. And she is caught in a time loop trying to figure out what is going on in Elsinore and trying to solve the mystery of King Hamlet's murder and trying to avoid her own murder as well. And it is full of Shakespearean language and Shakespearean characters and remixes them and then literally draws us in in a way that I think Shakespeare's plays in their own time and even today can do as well, draw us in, give us a point of view that we otherwise would not have in our day-to-day lives.
7: Well, Marissa, thank you so much for giving us all of these new ways to think about Shakespeare. We're gonna be stuck at home for a while during the holidays and now I've got a brand new list of things to read and listen to and play.
2: All right, we're going to round out our first half of our list of the top 10 stories of the year with topics number seven and number six. This time I'm going to leave that a little bit secret for you as we reveal that to you with our special panel of line, Opinion Panelists. But since this is the last show of the year, just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you listeners, viewers, however you get us, whether it's over the air, through this podcast, uh, on watching online, on Facebook and YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, we so appreciate you taking the time. We know that it's a heavy lift to sit down and to listen to all of the complex stories that we bring to you each week, but we know you love the state as we do and find these conversations important. We always appreciate hearing back from you on our discussions, uh, what you heard that you didn't know, what you liked, what you didn't like, as well as suggestions of additional voices we should bring into the show. All of those are welcome. Head to any of those social media platforms, drop us a line, let us know what you think. We will be back next week in a brand new year, but we're not done with 2020 yet. We'll finish up our countdown with the top five stories of the year, plus a special look back at Laura Ingalls Wilder. We want to uh, make you aware that uh, next week on December 29th here on New Mexico PBS, there is a new American Masters show all about Laura Ingalls Wilder and her life. But we uh, reached back into the archives a bit just about a year, two years ago, where we talked to Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer Caroline Fraser. She's from Santa Fe, and she wrote uh, a biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Then we want to share all of that interview with you again as well and encourage you to watch that show on the 29th here on NMPBS. Have a great week, everybody. Enjoy the holidays. Enjoy your family. But most importantly, be safe. We all want to see ourselves uh, and everyone in the state have a healthy start to 2021. And we will be back with you again next week.
0: We're back at the line table now with our number seven story of 2020. And this one is also COVID related. It's what we have dubbed mask madness. In many ways face coverings have become political flashpoints of the past year and it shows no sign of slowing. A lot of the angst over masks comes from the changing science about their effectiveness in curbing the spread of COVID-19 since the pandemic started. Jessica Onsures, how have you seen that evolution filter out to the communities you serve at the Carlsbad Current Argus?
1: We were lightly impacted by COVID numbers early in the pandemic and mm-hmm. I think people saw the use of a mask as sort of one of those extra things that we didn't really have to do since we weren't seeing any huge numbers Um, and then it became more of a using a mask is a or not using a mask is a tool to show defiance for Mm -hmm. some of these uh, larger emergency health orders that you know southern new mexico and communities felt were negatively impacting us Um, watching that shift was incredibly interesting people went from we're going to do everything we can to um, help stave off this health crisis in our state to wait a minute this is a tool for us to be able to say um, you've gone a little too far Um, we don't understand or I, I think the best way to put it is that they didn't they were using it as a statement. We don't understand why you're making the decisions you're making. Um, give us a, a opportunity to voice our our own opinions about what needs to happen here. Um, so it went from you know we are we are all in this together to let's take a step back and wait and see what you know what this really means, what kind of effect it has.
0: Mm-hmm. Boy, it, yeah the changing tide down there. No no question there. Um, Dan Boyd, how did we get here where a simple piece of cloth <laughs> turned into an amazingly heated political debate all because, is this all because of President Trump or was there something else going on here? Did Jessica just start to get at the, at the edge of this? What, what, what happened here?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's several factors. I think some of it is a president who's been, some of the messaging and people listen to that and it hasn't been a consistent message from Uh, national and state leaders. Um, And I think, too, you know, you kind of mentioned it in the run-up, but um, initially masks weren't mandatory, and the science has evolved on that. And I I think that's also contributed to, you know, wait a minute, at first they were recommended, or first uh, state health officials said they weren't necessary. And and so I think, you know, that has led to some confusion as well. But Mm -hmm. I think it's become a a political flashpoint at this point. we even saw during the first special session this year of some legislators not wearing masks on the floor despite a rule. And, right. and they, that battle was kind of avoided and, and they weren't made to wear them. But I, I think it's, you know, uh, for better or worse, it, it's kind of become a, a, a thing of resistance to some and, and to others, it's just become part of the daily life. I mean, I think my seven-year-old son is probably better at I am than wearing a mask and just getting, getting used to it.
0: Yeah, and we're also worried that kids wouldn't be able to adapt, remember that early on, that they wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, Julianne, interestingly, um, is, I, I just gotta ask, is there a way to bypass politics here on this or, or is, is it too late? I mean, here we are at Christmas week, folks are getting together with families, they're getting together like they did on Thanksgiving. You know, masks for some people, masks for, no masks for some others. Can the needle really be moved at this point?
5: I think certainly humans have an infinite capacity to change their behavior, mm-hmm. and the messaging that we're receiving from the science and medical community is not mixed messaging. The message we're receiving is wear a mask, don't interact with another family, mm-hmm. you know, s- stay away from as many other people as you can, um, and none of that should be political or needed to be political. Um, I agree that I think the messaging from the very top um, echelon of the government of the United States um, early on, I think those were some, uh, some symbols that people took. Um, but really, it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, one of the things that has always resonated with me was that um, I wear this mask for you. You know, that wearing a mask is about protecting all of the people around you. And so, conversely, not wearing a mask is really an outward sign that you don't care about the people around you. Or well, that's one way you know to interpret um, that action. I know certainly there are some people who have conditions that indicate that they wearing a mask is really not good for them. And certainly, um, you know, that's your your personal decision and, and the conclusion you've come to with your physician. But I do still think a vast majority of people are either wearing them because they think. Um, I they're not wearing them because they think at that moment it's inconvenient. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, if you live in a shared space where you're sharing a front entry gate or an apartment building entrance with other people, you might consider that to be an extension of your home. Uh. But if you're interacting with other people, that's still a public space. You should have your mask on from your car to your front door out of respect for the people around you and I just don't think that's really that hard to understand.
0: Mm-hmm. Joe Biden, or President-elect Biden, Andy Lyman has said he wants to have folks masked for the first hundred days of his administration, starting in late January. And I, I just got to ask, though, you know, this idea that science doesn't matter—that we can ask, we can ask these things, but there's science behind it. How do we? Is there a way to reignite some faith in science, some faith in logic, or? or SOME PEOPLE CAN AND SOME PEOPLE CAN'T. WHAT'S YOUR THOUGHT THERE?
4: Yeah, I DON'T KNOW. I, I GUESS I'M NOT SUPER HOPEFUL THAT that WE'D GET A, a UNIFIED um, BACKING OF WHAT THE SCIENCE SAYS BECAUSE mm-hmm. MUCH LIKE WE'VE SEEN WITH CLIMATE CHANGES, THERE'S ALWAYS GOING TO BE A GROUP OF PEOPLE, NOT VERY LARGE, BUT THERE'S A VOCAL GROUP OF PEOPLE THAT SAY, WELL, WHAT ABOUT THIS AND WHAT ABOUT THAT? YOU LOOK AT STATISTICS AND YOU CAN KIND OF, um, YOU KNOW, MAKE IT. Seem like you, however you want, and so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not, like I said, I'm not hopeful that mm-hmm. that people will come together and say, "Oh, the science says this." There's going to be a group of people that says, "Yeah, but the science also says this."
0: Yeah, I'm going to wrap this segment, Jessica. With you, um, I'm curious, I, the hoarding situation that happened the first time around in the spring—did that happen in your part of the state as well? And is that, is that still going on?
1: shelves. Um, we saw just as much panic here as we as other parts of the state. There was no toilet paper to be had. There was no bleach to be had. Wow. Uh, you try to buy one more than one gallon of bleach and you were turned okay. back around to put one back. Um, yes, it definitely happened. And it started happening with everyday household items. And then you saw that shift to things of import like meat and the meat prices soared and PPE and all, all of um, those items that you would NEED TO HELP PROTECT YOURSELF FOR THIS PANDEMIC. Um, mm-hmm. I, I DON'T THINK IT WAS ISOLATED TO ANY ONE PART OF THE STATE. I THINK WE WERE ALL FEELING um, THE IMMEDIATE MESSAGE OF YOU'RE GOING TO BE STUCK IN YOUR HOME FOR A WHILE. YOU'RE GOING right. TO BE um, LIMITED FROM WHAT YOU CAN ACCESS. SO stock UP NOW.
0: Mm-hmm. AND NOW WE REACHED OUR SIXTH BIGGEST STORY OF 2020. And LET ME JUST SAY THIS IS WHERE THE CHOICES GOT REALLY DIFFICULT. SO MANY HUGE STORIES TO TALK ABOUT THIS YEAR, BUT IN THE END WE WENT WITH COVID-19'S DAMAGING EFFECTS ON SCHOOLS AND OUR EDUCATION SYSTEM. WE ALREADY TALKED ABOUT THE RISE OF ZOOM, BUT JULIANNE, EVERYONE AGREES THAT VIRTUAL CLASSROOMS LEAD TO PRETTY SERIOUS LEARNING LOSS. THE NUMBERS ARE STARTING TO COME IN NOW. HOW DO YOU THINK THE STATE HAS HANDLED THESE DIFFICULT DECISIONS ABOUT WHEN TO GO BACK AND HOW TO DO HYBRID SETUP AND ALL THE REST?
5: Well, I think it's become obvious that, you know, keeping the students in remote learning situations um, as much as possible, you know, for as long as possible is the prudent decision. And we've seen that, you know, pretty much across the state, Um, certainly in Santa Fe, Santa Fe public schools decided early on um, to really limit the hybrid model and to keep, you know, the vast majority of students um, at home for their remote learning. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are issues with that. You know, the Santa Fe reporter just did an interview that you could watch on our YouTube channel with the Capitol High School president, I'm sorry, principal, Mm -hmm. um, Jamie Holiday. And she talked about, you know, all the ways that the high school students are learning this new technology along with their teachers and they're uh, trying to retrain themselves about being disciplined for showing up Class and doing their homework. Um, Another shift that uh, Principal Holiday talked about is really the decision to standardize the online learning platform. Hmm. Early in the pandemic, you saw Santa Fe Public Schools. Uh, You might have a student in elementary school and a student in middle school and a student in high school all living under your roof and they're all using a different learning platform. And so, um, kind of in the uh, the Second stage of setting up the remote learning you saw Santa Fe public schools switch everyone to the same platform Mm -hmm. and um, you know the teachers and principals say that was really a big help and that was aimed at you know um, just making things better for parents who are now. trying to help their kids navigate a a whole new world. Um, So those are some of the issues. I think the other big connectivity issue is about people who still don't have internet at home. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of students in our district. I know in in rural parts of the state, certainly that gets exponentially worse. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've seen a lot of districts making partnerships with cellular uh, providers to get hotspots in place. Uh, The reporter did a story earlier in the year with the technology director at the Santa Fe Indian School who was really working on this um, for all the students in rural New Mexico, um, in Indian country who have an even bigger challenge with connectivity. So we've seen there are thousands of new hotspots for students that are um, in use across the state. WILL THAT BE ENOUGH AND WILL THAT BE a, a PERMANENT CHANGE? I THINK THOSE ARE SOME OF THE QUESTIONS THAT STILL REMAIN TO BE ANSWERED. Mm-hmm. Uh, DAN BOYD, uh, EARLY
0: IN DECEMBER, EARLIER IN THE MONTH, THE STATE REPORTED THERE ARE NOW 12,000 NEW MEXICO STUDENTS WHO HAVE GONE, QUOTE UNQUOTE, MISSING. MEANING THEY'RE NOT ATTENDING SCHOOL AND HAVE GIVEN NO INDICATION OF THEIR FUTURE PLANS. Uh, HOW WILL WE EVER GET THOSE KIDS BACK? I MEAN, THAT'S GOT TO BE THE BOTTOM LINE QUESTION HERE. And WHAT'S THE LONG-TERM IMPLICATIONS OF ALL THIS?
3: Yeah, I I think that's incredibly troubling, and um, I would maybe give a, you know, a little more pessimistic take on it than than Julianne, and and being a a parent, um, you know, I I think certainly uh, it's not for lack of effort on teachers and school administrators' uh, part, but especially these folks, these kids who dropped off the map, I mean, whether it's they're being homeschooled, whether they're just not engaged at all in the education process, and and I do think going forward, I mean, that's going to that's going to take years to or, or be impossible in many cases to try and get those kids re-engaged mm-hmm. and then some of the academic losses you know uh i think the legislative finance committee had said that in in some students case it could be a year's uh worth of lost learning and, and wow. kind of those academic um you know shortcomings and i think that's going to take years to kind of try and remedy that and um you know and i think the state's gonna to have to come up with a plan to kind of target extra. FUNDING, EXTRA ASSISTANCE, ESPECIALLY Mm -hmm. AT SOME OF THESE AT-RISK STUDENTS, AND and TRY TO GET THEM BACK UP TO SPEED. AND IN MANY CASES, THESE ISSUES WERE ALREADY HAPPENING BEFORE, BUT AT LEAST WITH SCHOOL, THERE WAS THIS PLACE WHERE, KIND OF A a SAFE PLACE WHERE THEY COULD GET FOOD, um, YOU KNOW, GET SOME SOCIAL KIND OF GUIDANCE AND and THAT KIND OF INTERACTION. Mm
0: -hmm. JESSICA, JULIANNE MENTIONED CONNECTIVITY ISSUES, CERTAINLY, AND NO DOUBT your PART OF THE STATE IS DEALING WITH THAT AS WELL. AND I'M CURIOUS IF YOU THINK THIS MIGHT BE What's been needed for a lot of years to get this thing really going about connectivity in our especially in the rural parts of our state, have we really finally come to that point where it's like, guys, we need to have this everywhere now, no matter what it costs?
1: You know, we did um interviews with uh incoming candidates in this year's election, and one of their major issues was um, rural internet connection and mm-hmm. they sort areas that are wide and vast and spread out. And you know, we are serving a community that is in relative poverty, so getting access to that is another issue as well. Um, we were really very lucky in parts of um, of our southern states, a lot of the school districts had indicated that they were already moving to improve or update their network and um, a lot of their schools. and that was a good place to start but when you don't have access from home that makes it all that more difficult so we are talking about and I think Dan kind of touched on this a bit we're talking about thousands of students who just don't have the access needed to complete their everyday education. We were listening in to Alamogordo Public School Superintendent last night who said every day, um, every day when students are supposed to be in school, they're missing, missing, they're they're saying truant, right? They're calling these students truant. About 250 students on average every day out of one of the smaller districts in the state. So the impact is huge. And we're not only talking about loss of education, right? Schools were where you caught things like um, child abuse or learning disabilities and that those services are now, you know." Up in the air. What happens um, when you can't get kids in a face-to-face basis in a classroom with educators who can spot some of these things? But beyond that, um, it's been really interesting watching some of the responses to our um, desert, um, you know, our connection deserts. So really, Las Cruces—they had a story um, early in the year about how they'd equipped school buses as hotspots and were driving mm-hmm. them around neighborhoods to help these families who just weren't able to for. Because of finances or because of um, location, able to connect to the internet to get these students back on
2: track.
0: Mm. Andy Lyman, lingering over all this is the Yazzie Martinez case. And when you think about it, uh, of course, that's the constitutional requirement to get our kids up to speed to pr- provide a quality education to all of its students. But how does COVID 19 impact that lawsuit? Is it going to accelerate the changes that the lawsuit's looking for, or in fact, make those inequities that much worse? I-
4: HARD TO, to PREDICT, uh, ESPECIALLY GIVEN THAT THE, the CURRENT administration SORT OF TRIED TO GIVE A, YOU KNOW, MISSION ACCOMPLISHED uh, MOMENT THERE EARLIER IN THE YEAR. Mm-hmm. Um, BUT I THINK IT, AMONG MANY OTHER THINGS IN THIS this PANDEMIC, AGAIN, THAT KIND OF GETS HIGHLIGHTED AND REFOCUSED INTO OUR, our PURVIEW IS THAT um, WE CAN'T JUST SAY EVERYBODY GOES TO SCHOOL ONLINE BECAUSE WE LITERALLY HAVE, YEAH, A, a PENDING... Lawsuit or pending litigation that is, we have so many people don't have those resources, WHERE it's broadband or mm-hmm. even childcare, right? I mean, how do you right. make sure that these kids are taken care of while they're at home, maybe alone, trying to navigate their schedule?
0: That's a very good point there. Very, very, very good point. Good way to finish. Hey, up next week on New Mexico in Focus, we wrap up our countdown with the top five stories of 2020. Let us know what stories make your personal list. BY REACHING OUT ON FACEBOOK, TWITTER OR INSTAGRAM. THANKS AGAIN FOR JOINING US AND FOR STAYING INFORMED AND ENGAGED. WE'LL SEE YOU AGAIN NEXT WEEK IN FOCUS.